Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, a weekly show about all things engineering, DIY projects, manufacturing, industry news, and coming to you live over cloud lifters. We're your hosts, electrical engineers, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 396. So yeah, we're going to talk about cloud lifters. So Parker, what is a cloud lifter? We're not sponsored, unless Cloudlifter wants to sponsor us. We're not sponsored by Cloudlifter. It's Cloudlifter brought to you by cloud microphones. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So anyways, what a Cloudlifter is, is a amplifier that goes in between... This is so weird. It goes in between your microphone and your preamp to gain your microphone before your preamp. So it's like a pre-preamp. <laughs> yeah, that's that's about right. So these were devices that were recommended to us by our uh, producing studio. Basically, they were like, "Hey, get these are the hardware that you know we recommend to all our podcasters." We already had the SM7B microphones. We've had these for these microphones for honestly the beginning of the podcast almost. Yeah, we got them pretty pretty soon on. Yeah, pretty. I think like by episode like fifteen we had them. Yeah, if you watch any, it's <laughs> funny. If you watch any podcast on like YouTube, like like Joe Rogan and stuff like that, basically podcasters have this mic. It's just like the classic talking mic. Yeah, it's very neutral response it only picks up stuff around it it's not really a room microphone yeah it gets the job done and is classic yeah i actually like recording on it too steven already had a really good interface i got a new interface a while back because one i had would turn me into a robot every so often <laughs> and then i got these cloud lifters on their recommendation so what it does what the cloud lifter does is use the phantom power output from your preamp. Mm -hmm. So you basically apply 48 volts onto your microphone line and that energizes the cloud lifter to basically power the preamp inside of it. Correct. And the idea is the hardware inside the cloud lifter cuz it's what what was the gain like 25 dB? 25-ish dB. And I say yeah. ish because it's not controlled. It's sort of a you get what you get with it. So this is just a little inline box. It's a little yeah. steel enclosure with an in and an out. You apply phantom power and it boosts your signal. I've done a little bit of research on on the cloud lifter. So it's it's a JFET preamp on the input, but there is a little bit of pizzazz to it. Yeah, I'm not going to say like voodoo, because they actually do use like good JFETs in this. Well, so the idea is. This amplifier is really, really good at this 25 dB gain. And it's supposed to be really good for voices in that frequency range. And that way you can turn your preamp, which might not be very good at boosting, let's say, SM7B's low volume. Because you usually do have to crank it pretty high on SM7B. Yeah, it's a dynamic mic that doesn't have a monstrous output. It's, mm -hmm. it's got plenty for modern interfaces, but still, yeah, you're right, Parker. You do have to boost it a little bit on your interface. So that's the idea, is it's very good at boosting this 25 dB so you can turn your interface down 25 dB right. and presumably have less noise on your microphone line. Well, okay, so on the inside of this thing, 
it has a the the part number at least at one point in time. I I don't know if they're still using this, but I've seen that they have used this part, which is uh, it's it's a JFET made by Linear Systems called the LSK three eighty nine, which comes in a handful of different packages. But but one of the packages is an, is an SOIC eight, and it looks like they use that package. And in this SOIC eight, it just has two JFETs in it. That's it. The thing about it is these two JFETs are all both on the same die, so they're they're pretty highly matched. And they have extremely low noise values. JFETs are are pretty good, or not pretty. They're very good when it comes to noise performance. And the data sheet for this calls out 1.3 nanovolts per square root of hertz, which is, that's stupid low noise in the grand scheme of things. Like when you go look at op amps, go look at noise figures and things, they're going to be a lot higher than that. But this is just a pair of JFETs in a in an SOIC package. You kind of have to set them up, right? So the thing is, I think the configuration they have is like a push-pull pair kind of thing inside this uh, inside the cloud lifter. That's that's one of the reasons why I said they they say about twenty-five dB of gain because I don't think they're setting it up to have a fixed gain. They're just setting up this amplifier, and it's in the neighborhood of twenty-five dB of gain. In fact, some of the language that they use is, is a little bit vague like that, but regardless, it's somewhere in that, that range and you get really, really low, low noise due to the individual noise figures of them and the matching of the two JFETs in this package. So I can understand the, the situation like Parker said, where throw this cloud lifter in front of your system and then turn your gain down and you may benefit from having the lower noise of the cloud lifter versus whatever your interface is. Your signal path now, Parker, is your your SM7 goes into a cloud lifter, goes into a Focusrite Scarlet, right? That's correct. The Focusrite Scarlet 8, which is the four-channel device, and it's a Gen 3 one, too, so it's like the latest one. Sure, sure. M- mine is... Through a USB cable <laughs> to my computer. <laughs> Mine is fairly similar to that. However, mine goes the SM7 into the cloud lifter now. I put that signal through one channel on a MindPrint DTC, which is a dual tube compressor. And then that goes through my vacuum tube compressor that I built earlier this year? Last year. No, I think it was last year. Uh, But I have that. Sometimes I run it. Sometimes it's bypassed. I don't think... I've ever really run it in a in a configuration that is super noticeable. And then that goes into my interface, which I also have a Scarlet. But it's kind of funny now because I had my whole system set up. I'm using that MindPrint, which is a mic preamp, and it has gain on it. But now I have a cloud lifter in front of it, so I have too much gain. So now I'm having to use my MindPrint to actually reduce my signal, even though we're just talking about voice here. So... At the end of the day, if we didn't mention this, I doubt anyone would even notice. And even if you had like AB left and right in in both ears, I doubt you'd notice. The one result that might happen is noise floor gets a little bit lower, maybe. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's what the main benefit of it is, is yeah. lower noise floor. So you could well, technically get more dynamic range. Technically, at the same time, so these these JFETs also have really low input capacitance and very, very high input impedance. So for some microphones that you plug into this cloud lifter, you can get better performance because its input impedance is through the roof. And I know in a lot of situations, people use them with like ribbon mics and things like that. But a lot of a lot of times they're just 
boosters for dynamic mics like what we have going on here. Mm -hmm. So if you have a mic that gets crazy due to loading with whatever your interface is, first of all, that means your interface is probably not that great if it has a low input impedance. But these things should have a much, much higher input impedance. But then again, you know, the thing about it is like the preamps inside these interfaces nowadays are are plenty good when it comes down to voice, you know? It's not like we're trying to get every crystal clean little nuance in Parker and my voice. We're, we're not recording for a symphony here. We're, we're talking on a podcast. But, you know, hey, if uh, if it enhances things, why not? You know, you bring that, bring up the ribbon mic. Have you found that thing yet? Oh, yeah, yeah. I actually have it in a drawer right over here, and I found all of my ribbon mic, the the little kit that I had with all the uh, the foil that I used to actually create the ribbon. Yeah, because weren't you going to, like, make a housing and everything for that thing? I still want to do that. This is like a project from, I want to say, six years ago at this point. We recorded, I don't know, a minute or two. We recorded a couple episodes on it. No, I don't think we did. We didn't do full episodes, but we did, you know, some chunk of an episode through the ribbon mic. And, you know, I remember it not being amazing, but it was still pretty cool that it was done. Because that, that was... Now, that ribbon mic could potentially benefit from a thing like a cloud lifter because that that mic was so low output that we had to crank the gain on it in fact that would be fun that would be fun to pull the old ribbon mic out and throw it up on the cloud lifter and see what comes of that yeah that was episode 110 on march 7th 2018 dangling transformers yeah that's right now actually so i know that mic needs repaired because I actually broke it on purpose. I did it backwards. I put a signal into the mic and had the ribbon be a speaker, a little tiny speaker. And uh, I I put too much into it and I broke the ribbon. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not very hard to do. You can, a, a loud P or a T can sometimes be enough to break a ribbon in a ribbon mic. So yeah, that would, uh, I, I seriously, just the other day I was cleaning my basement and I found all that stuff. I was like, I need to get back into that. That was fun. And like in an afternoon, we made a mic, no problem. It was easy. Yeah, what was really fun about that project was like 3D printing. We 3D printed like the housing for it, mm -hmm. for the, the whole ribbon, but then we printed a fixture. It's not really a fixture. It was a a jig. Yeah. A form. It was a form. Yeah. We printed a form to squeeze the metallic ribbon into the right shape. Yeah, yeah. That took a little bit to get right, though, like the tolerances of the, the form. Yeah, you have to you have to get the, the ribbon so close to the magnets and getting the right ripple pattern on the ribbon and getting all of everything to be flat and then cut straight such that the ribbon doesn't curve when you put a pattern into it. It's there's there's an art to it for sure. Mm -hmm. And just making something in an afternoon worked, but it was it showed all the difficulties of it. Let's put it that <laughs> yeah, way. Yeah. It, that was that was a great I love those projects where you can dream it up, buy the parts, and you get success in a very short period of time. You you uh, success is in like it actually works. Yeah, yeah. It, to some degree. That those those are really fun. There's something gratifying of getting that uh, immediate response of it being i don't know functioning so i do have a question about microphones because i'm not big on analog circuitry or just music recording in general so phantom power is when 
your microphone amplifier or preamp is applying 48 volts to your microphone, what benefit does that have? Like, let's say you had an SM7B that had phantom power. I mean, it doesn't because it's a dynamic mic, uh, passive mic. So what, what does that do? Like if you're designing a microphone around that. The name phantom power is a little goofy because it makes it seem like magical in some way. It's not. On a microphone cable, there's, there's three wires. There's ground and then two hots, basically. All phantom power does is it applies 48 volts to the two hots. And so you can deliver power over that cable. So if you need to power something like a microphone or something, you're just delivering power. And your signal is capacitively coupled to those two lines that have the power. And then in your, your interface, it's capacitively coupled out. So all it does is it's just a way to deliver power to something down the line. That's it. Yeah, so what I was asking is for powered microphones, is a powered microphone basically have a cloud lifter built into it? Is that the idea? Yeah, it has amplification of some sort built into it. Okay. So a cloud lift, yeah, if you could take the cloud lifter and shove its guts up into the microphone such that it's, I guess, closer to the actual sensing element and then apply phantom power, that, that's effectively what you and I have just built with this SM7 and a cloud lifter in line with it. Is there a reason why this setup with the SM7B and the cloud lifter would be preferred over buying something that was like that already? Now you're starting to get into the flavor world where it's like, <laughs> no, seriously, like if you like the sound of an SM7, then you buy an SM7. And if you want some gain on it, you buy a cloud lifter. If you like the sound of a microphone that has all of those guts pre-built into it, then you just buy that. You're getting into the territory of, is it better? You can't answer that with yes or no. You just, mm, okay. do you like it? Buy it. If you don't, don't. There's some mics that require phantom power. There's some mics that don't require it. It's just a different way of delivering a signal. And yeah, it really does come down to flavor. I suppose you could make an argument that by delivering power to the microphone, you're placing the active circuitry physically closer to the sensing element. And there, there's an argument that you could probably make that there's something superior about that. But I think that's really probably splitting hairs. It's just whatever a uh, the manufacturer does or the, the designer chooses in the microphone. That's why I figured, but I had to ask. But you are already came across something that is also slightly a bit, I don't know, ridiculous, absurd. Like we just took a preamp and put it in front of a preamp. Oh yeah, yeah. Now <laughs> I have a dynamic microphone that goes into an inline preamp that is fed power from a preamp that then goes out and goes into a preamp that then leaves that and goes into an interface that has a preamp. So I have, I have like 15 different ways of adding gain to this signal and it's just voice, you know, <laughs> although the, 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 the difference about it is all of the preamps and, and circuitry I have going on have dynamics in them. So they have compressors. So where you apply the gain actually matters. Gain staging in the system I have depends on, you know, if you want to push the signal harder into a compressor, that is not a linear output to the output on that. So gain in doesn't directly relate to gain out on a compressor. Yeah, it's not a linear output. It's, yeah, it's, once you're past the threshold, it's a, it's a different 
it's a different transfer function on a on a compressor. I also have EQ. I don't use any of these for the podcast, but I use it for recording. And so where you place the gain does matter in that. So it, that's why you would have a system that has these different gain stages on it. But when it comes down to it for what we're doing here, I guess my new paradigm is I'm going to rely as much as I can on the cloud lifter because out of everything I've got almost all the gain comes from vacuum tubes down the line now, which that's probably not the lowest noise situation. They're not bad. Vacuum tubes are not super noisy inherently, but the cloud lifters probably an order of magnitude better or two orders of magnitude better. So we might as well just, <laughs> yeah. just stick with the cloud lifter as the new basis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But as I keep saying, it's splitting hairs at a certain point, especially with voice. Voice is not the hardest thing to do. You know, I wonder, part of, okay, so especially in the summer with, with Parker, you have to run the AC in your office mm-hmm. for hours before the podcast to cool it down enough such that you can turn it off and during the one, two, three hours we record, you have to kind of coast yeah. on whatever you dropped it to. And you turn it off because your AC is audible. I wonder if with the cloud lifter, we could get away with reducing gain and you could still run your AC. No, because remember the gain's the same in the end, so it'll pick it up. Maybe. I don't know. I think it's worth a worth a shot. Like Right now, there's a fan running in my basement. It's my radon fan for getting rid of, uh, well, radon. And no way. That threshold is not enough for this mic plus whatever gain we're doing to pick up. I wonder if there's a way we could... I I can turn it on real quick. Yeah, turn it on. Is it on? It is on right now. I'm not hearing it. Oh, I'm going to turn it back off. (laughs) Yeah, and then we could... (laughs) I even boosted my headphone volume there. But yeah, I I pre-chill the recording room at my house, basically. (laughs) So I can make it through there. Anything else about the cloud lifter? No, 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 no. We've talked enough about it. I think we need to take it apart next. Yeah. No, 100%. I I actually, so I just installed it before we started this podcast. And I was wishing I had more time to to bust it apart so I could actually reverse engineer the circuit. Because I'd love to see, is there any magic or is it just a diff amp with good transistors? Yeah. And what I mean by magic or is there a unique configuration they're using? Mm Mm-hmm. My gut tells me no. It's just good parts and a standard layout. Yeah, and then with like a really nice enclosure to reduce interference. And to make it look sexy. I wonder if the enclosure costs more than the circuitry inside. Maybe. That JFET in singles, I saw it on DigiKey. I think it was between 6 and $8. And uh, and so in quantity. Oh, okay. So that, that actually is a really good part then. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's good, but it has... Very specific purposes. How often do you need a just two JFETs in an SOIC eight package like that? This it exists for this kind of reason, you know. Mm-hmm. I guess if you really, really need low noise, super low noise. So I could see this being like audio guys want it and like lab grade equipment for measuring signals. Yeah, I would say like some kind of sensors would probably use this yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, transducers of some sort. Yeah. You know what's interesting about phantom power is it being 48 volts. But you know what else is 48 volts? It's like power over Ethernet. But so what's interesting about that is 
Phantom power on microphones. When did they first start doing that? That was a long time ago. Uh, 1964. Okay. So that's before a lot of like electrical standards for commercial devices existed. But that one was not 48 volts. Oh, what was it? 20 something? That was somewhere between 9 to 12. Okay. So when was 48 volts standardized for phantom power? Because what I'm getting at is for exposure to DC voltage, like anything over 50 is considered hazardous. 50 volt DC. So 48 is one of those. You see 48. I'm like, ah, that's it's under the threshold, right? And the same thing with power over Ethernet. It's 48 volts more than likely because it's under the threshold. So you don't need special certifications or training to do the wiring. So apparently I was not aware of this. There's three standards for phantom power. There's 12, 24, and 48. I've been exposed to 48 the most, although the newest standard recommends 24 volts for new systems. Hmm. So I guess they're trying to migrate away from 48. 48's kind of ridiculous. Why do you need 48 volts? That's a ton of voltage for a system like that's taking microvolts to millivolts and converting it to low volts. So, yeah, I guess... I was not aware that the other two existed. I'm pretty sure with your standing mixing board, when you turn phantom power on, you get 48. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 48 is a weird number for DC because it is under that, that threshold of what's considered hazardous. The other thing about phantom power is you're at the mercy of whatever you're plugging into that delivers the 48. So you could buy an awesome microphone, right? This really great mic that requires phantom power and then plug it into something that has garbage 48 volts. And now you're just destroying the, the, the quality of that really expensive mic. So you're now having to consider the whole system. Your mic has to be good and the power delivery has to be good. I bet you the Cloudlifter, in addition to those JFETs, has some really good power filtering on the 48 volt. Maybe. I would love to open it up and see, because maybe it doesn't. But I'm saying is the only way they can make their, I mean, it's an audio device, so they can claim whatever. But if you have a preamp that can benefit from this 25 dB in reduction, it probably might not be able to spit out 48 volt phantom power that really well. See what I'm getting at with that one? Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering if the reason why they're using the match JFETs in a single package is to get really good power supply rejection ratio. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Such that that doesn't... So the PSRR is really good because they're using really highly matched and low noise. So it won't matter how much fluctuations there are. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Would not not surprise me. That could be it. And then then it matters less. I'm not going to say it doesn't matter, but... Well, we'll open one up this coming up weekend and uh, report back next week. I actually, I don't have any Phantom Power required microphones, and I've just dealt with them very rarely. So I don't have a whole lot of experience with it. Just like when I've run sound for my church and stuff, we've used it. You can take your cloud lifter and just like duct tape it to SM7B, and then now it's, there it goes. And now, yeah, I've added Phantom Power. Yeah, yeah. Okay. The community site, the new community site running off of Discourse is... 
I'm calling it done. Um, I sold needs some graphics from our marketing team, but it's uh, up. That's that's polish. That's polish. We don't do that engineering. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all built, and I have it configured kind of like our current Slack channel community where there is uh, a general, there is the podcast discussions, and then there is an actual chat area so people can just do asynchronous chatting. Uh, so that's really cool. And then I have it set up to where like it will post the articles automatically from like the uh, podcast. So people will have a place to talk about like particular episodes of the podcasts. And I did get the sign-on system working for it. So basically the, the MacRev factory login that y'all have will log you into this as well. Ah, oh, now that's neat. Yeah, it uses a, a single sign-on system to work with that. And so that's going to be the great thing. So if you have an account with MacroFab, you have an account with Discourse. Yes. Awesome. So yeah, it should. I really wanted to do it that way to help kind of build it a lot like how our Slack community where you have to go make an account and that kind of stuff because it really does keep the bots and spammers out of the community and any kind of like bad actors just won't go through the effort. So yeah, and it's also like if you build with Macrofab or use Macrofab services and you become a bad actor, well, too bad. <laughs> you just lost your privileges to talk in the community. Mm. Still can build with us though. <laughs> Makes it hard for people to switch accounts and that kind of stuff, I guess. Yeah. We will probably go live around the 10th anniversary of Macrofab, which is coming up in like two weeks. Ah, and that's really close to the 400th episode of the podcast. Yeah, I wonder if we should do it for the episode 400 is to let that open. Though I kind of want to do, just that. that's do it now, <laughs> but it's... Just get it done. But I'm going to wait till the 10th anniversary at least. If anyone out there that's listening, send me a message on Slack, our, our public Slack channel, if you want to like test drive our new community site so I can get feedback on like how does posting work and that kind of stuff before we absolutely just like rip down Slack and push this thing out into the world. Because for Slack, what I'm probably going to do is message all the users, all like 800 something users being like, hey, this is dying in next like we'll probably give like what, two weeks notice? Yeah, th there should be a runway. Yeah. So we'll give like two weeks notice that, hey, this is shutting down. The new place is here. Go. Yeah. And then in two weeks, we'll just shut it all off. But yeah, the cool thing with Discourse is it's also searchable by Google. So questions and stuff will just surface there. And it's going to be easier to find information. Information just won't go away now, which it does with Slack. Discourse is browser-based, so there's not a specific app for it. Correct. That's something to keep in mind in case somebody, you know. Yeah, but you can just use your browser on your phone. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is very mobile friendly from what I played around with. Yeah, I've I've only logged in on my computer. I'll need to look at um look it on my phone. Yeah. So that's all I've got with that. So hopefully in 2 weeks we go live with that and then 2 more weeks and Slack dies. So that's fun. <laughs> we got to switch up our ending, our little jingle at the end that we say. Mm. 
so on the topic of reverse polarity protection, this is like the third week in a row we've talked about this, but uh, we have more cool ideas from our community. Henrik from the community says, basically, instead of having to worry about reverse polarity, what if you just accepted any polarity? Basically, just use a bridge rectifier on your input, and it doesn't matter if you plug in DC one way, DC the other way, or just go, hey, I got an AC transformer, just plug that thing in. <laughs> Which is actually a really good idea for audio devices, like you were talking about two weeks ago, Stephen. Oh, we were talking about barrel jacks, right? Yeah, yeah. Barrel yeah. jacks. So in pedal world for guitar effects, yeah. it's reverse of most other industries, but there's also the thing where there's some devices that are even AC powered bricks that are basically just transformers that right. go into a barrel jack. So you could literally just solve that entire industry's problems by using a bridge rectifier. Uh, but you introduce the diode drops issues. So you get lower supply voltage. And that is typically frowned upon in the pedal world. So unfortunately, you solve a problem, but you introduce another one. But there's a $9 linear tech device that solves that problem. <laughs> oh, tell me about it, Parker. Yeah, so Max and our community found a ideal, in quotes, I, I put the quotes there, ideal, uh, diode bridge controller. It's called the LT4320. It's a really cool chip. Basically, it's a quad MOSFET driver that has phase detection. Yep. And I think that's at least how it works. And so it detects the phase of the power coming into it, and then it can basically adjust the MOSFET bridge. It basically, instead of having diodes... It just turns them on and off. Yeah. It makes basically ideal diodes. Yes. Well, you still have some resistance on but at least you don't have a set voltage drop well which results in significantly less heat that gets generated from it so your efficiency can go mm -hmm. a lot higher it's i was looking into these chips actually months ago mainly for the guitar world because in in, in my amps any any transformer you buy off the shelf you're gonna have a filament winding which is 6.3 volts and sometimes for lower noise performance, it's better to have rectified DC 6.3 than it is to have AC 6.3 running across your circuit board because a lot of times it's really high current. And if you have DC high current, you can then somewhat ignore the noise performance from that. Now, the thing is, it's really hard to get 6.3 volt DC from a 6.3 volt AC tap. And what I mean by really hard, it's basically impossible. But I was thinking if you used one of these magic ideal diode controllers, you could get 6.3 DC off of a 6.3 AC transformer tap at high current, and you actually get better efficiency because of it. The thing that kind of blows it out of the water is just it's expensive. And uh, with the extra dollars there, it just makes sense to buy a – or get a transformer made that has a slightly hotter tap and then just do a classic rectification on it than it does to, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. to do this. But if you're really, really penny pinching on your efficiency budget and you have to go linear, these kinds of things are great for that. Yeah. And what's funny about this idea of using a bridge rectifier 
is that's technically how Snacky ended up working. Uh, if people don't remember, Snacky is the snack machine that I built with Anna XOR to bring to DEF CON. We built our own custom controller hardware that goes inside of it. And everything was great in Texas because uh, we were using the, the stock vending machine transformer that was taking the wall voltage and knocking it down to like 24 volt AC. And then we were rectifying that on our board and then converting that to like the 12 volt DC our motors needed and the 3.3 volts that all the low logic needed. But what happened was when we went to DEF CON the first time, it actually was the thing was the first day, everything worked great. Snacky turned on immediately, vending product just fine. The next day, they turned on the power conditioners at the Caesars form in Vegas. And the power was so ideally perfect to the US spec that it was a little too hot for our front end of our DC to DC converter. It was like 42 volts and it was like, no, I think it was 32 was the max. And so it was like 24 volts, which is 33.9 volts. That was just over. Just over. So basically what it was, was in my garage and before they turned the power conditioners on, the wall voltage was slightly lower than what the US like 120 volt spec would be. And uh, yeah. That kind of screwed us because, you know, Snacky wouldn't want to turn on. And what we ended up doing was bypassing the transformer inside the machine. And I had a 24-volt DIN rail mounted, like, a basically DC power supply that ran off AC. It now powers the whole logic board. But it goes through a bridge rectifier because that's just on the front end of that board. Mm-hmm. The first projects or the first products I worked on in my first job out of college, the, uh, the, the, the one product that we sold the most of, its input had a bridge rectifier on it. And uh, what was funny was at one point in time, they sold the product or they took labeling off of the product. It just had two input terminals, which were just screw terminals on it. And they were getting service requests all the time of like, hey, how do I hook this up? Which side do I put the, the positive to? And our support would be like, oh, you can put it on the either side. And then it would just be another question. What side do I put the positive to? And we ended up marking all the terminals or the two terminals. We, we put a plus and minus on it, even though it doesn't matter because you just, people could not comprehend that you could put it either way. It doesn't matter. It's the thermal printer. Oh, that's what you had it connected to? Yes. Snacky has a thermal printer from a kiosk built into her, and that runs off 24 volts. Yeah. That machine has so many different rails inside of it. It's great. <laughs> it's going to get another one. It's going to get POE. <laughs> so it's going to get a 48-volt rail, too. <laughs> nice. Oh, fun times. Phantom Ethernet. <laughs> well, I think it's the name <laughs> of this episode. <laughs> there we go. Phantom OE, Phantom over Ethernet. Yeah, I like it. Actually, I would not be surprised if someone has already thought about a microphone that is just, it's a microphone that does the digital conversion inside and sends your audio signal over Ethernet, but it gets powered over POE. I guarantee you that exists. That has to be a thing. Yeah. Okay. 
So the box truck, I haven't really been able to work on it in a while. It's been so hot here in Houston. I've been kind of like working on the cooling systems of all my other vehicles. But I think I finally got those in a really good spot. So I'm pretty happy with how those are working right now. But the box truck, basically the solar panels and power systems are next to work on. I designed a roof rack. I think I showed off like the aluminum I already had bent up on it. Um, I had send, cut, send, bend up some quarter inch aluminum for the roof rack. So it basically will mount to the sides of the box truck. And then I'm using like 1030 aluminum extrusion to build the roof rack. And then the solar panels will mount to that. And I'm hoping that it will be sturdy enough. Well, it should be because it's 1020, uh, 1030 and 1020 aluminum with quarter inch brackets all over to keep it from flexing too much. Because the solar panels are, you know, four feet by eight feet almost. So they're pretty big panels. Um, they're designed to be in like hurricane force winds and all that stuff. So I'm not too worried about them like coming apart on top. And, like they're rated for automotive too. So it's not like I shouldn't worry about that. It's mostly like keeping them attached to the box truck, I guess. I found a local Houston company called T Slot Tech. They're a company that basically carries all this extrusion locally. And I gave them my cut list and they're like, yeah, we can cut that up. And here's a quote. Nice. So I just go over there and pick it up. When's that going to happen? Um, I'm going over there on Friday, but not to pick it up yet. I'm going to talk to them because one of the things I want to be able to do is I want to fit six of these 550 watt panels on top of the box truck. But I technically only have space for four of them. But I have space for five if I like overhang the back one a little bit by like 12 inches, which is okay because like the lift gate extends 15 inches off the back. It's still not even the farthest thing back. But, you know, I can't hang another four feet off the back for another panel. So what I want to be able to do is on my roof rack is make a slider so then like when you park you can get up on the roof rack pull a pin slide the other panel out and put the pin back in mm. so you can have one whole panel that slides out and it's also covering over your uh lift gate area so you can have like a covered patio so to speak off the back of your box truck so i want them to kind of figure that part out like i need this thing to be able to drive down the freeway and not fly apart, have like the sliders fall apart. And they're like, yeah, we can help you out. We just got to see what we're kind of working with, with the brackets and stuff that I've already built. Well, that's cool. So we'll, we'll go figure that out and get They probably that. like working with guys like you who give them like bigger and cooler projects like that. Oh yeah, for sure. As opposed to just another, like, here's a T-slot desk I need, you know? Yeah, not that, I'm, not I'm that that's build- like bad. It just can get boring if you're doing that every day. Yeah, yeah. So I'm I'm building a roof rack out of their material and trying to build this crazy slider system. So yeah, that's the next stuff for the solar panels. And then for the batteries, I have server rack style batteries. So they're like three and a half U tall server racks that are just full of lithium batteries. And they're like, they are 99 pounds a piece. And I have two of these. Hmm. And usually they're mounted inside of the RV or like in a server rack inside your house or something like that. 
I can totally just put them inside the box truck, but I have so much space basically under the floor of the box truck that is better suited for this kind of stuff too. That's just like sits there all the time, right? And all it does is give up its pixies. But you know, is, is like, that a problem with them being exposed to heat? Not really heat. It's mostly weather. I guess heat is part of weather, but moisture because they're not waterproof. Mm-hmm. So I spent a long time trying to figure this out. Like I've thought about like building your own custom boxes with like doors because you have to be able to open them up to like do any kind of maintenance. Usually they're pretty maintenance free, but it's like, oh, if I need to like turn off the batteries, I have to be able to open up the whatever they're in to watertight them, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like, how do I do that and not have to like, like if I made a panel, it's like, sure, I could like silicone it shut. But let's say if I'm along like the side of the road, I need to turn these things off for some reason. You know, that'd be really shitty to have to like take it off, flip the switch and then reapply adhesive and put this panel back on. Mm. And so I was like, oh, I can get like a door for like boat hatches. I looked at boat hatches for a long time trying to find like the right shape boat hatch where like it would be just big enough to where these batteries could slide into it. And then I'd build like a steel enclosure and all that stuff to seal it. All those ended up being like way pricier than you would think, like cost wise Hmm. and a lot of work to like build because it's all thin sheet metal to like lighten the weight up on these enclosures. But you also have to make sure it's watertight and it's a lot of welding, a lot of seam welding, and then grinding and all that stuff to make these things. And it, also the cost of like the doors, like the hatches were like a hundred bucks minimal for the hatch. And I would need like two of them hmm. plus all the steel. So I kind of went away from that and I actually got really close to just putting them inside the box truck, like just make a rack that bolts to the floor. But then I found some waterproof surplus racks that are cases they're completely waterproof and they actually have shock mounting in it so like whatever you put inside like basically rides on rubber shock absorbers now these batteries don't really need that in this application but it's it's nice to have and uh i was able to buy these boxes for 80 bucks a piece Hmm. surplus so it was cheaper than trying to build a box way easier because now all i have to do is build brackets to hold them up underneath the box and so that's where i'm at with the batteries is i gotta build the brackets i'm gonna try to do that probably this coming up weekend cool let's build the brackets and get them mounted up and then basically like because it has like two covers that snap on to have seals what i'll do is i'll put bulkhead fittings for the battery terminals so that way they'll be waterproof and then the uh, communication ethernet out of the uh batteries will have to go through the box as well so i found some like panel mount waterproof ethernet jacks that i'm mounting to the sides as well but yeah the cool thing with that project is i have actually most of the steel to build just the brackets and so it's just cheaper overall because i can just reuse a lot of uh, leftover scrap metal i had Mm. or have now won't have next weekend though be using it Really, the only problem with doing it that way was like there's enough space to fit three of these batteries underneath the box truck and the space I want. But these cases are so weirdly shaped, like they're longer than they need to be. 
Uh, so I could technically only fit two of these cases and only one battery fits in a case. So probably down the road, if I basically find out that I need more, so I need more power, what I'll probably do is like sacrifice the actual enclosures of these batteries and take out the cells and basically put in my own power management system and then just take those waterproof cases and just fill them all with batteries. But I shouldn't, I have like 10 point, was it 10.5 kilowatt hours of battery? So that should be plenty to power what I need to power over. Cause I, well, I wonder, you know, I want to keep the AC running overnight. Yeah. And then the solar panels should be able to charge the batteries and run the AC during the day, which is also why I'm going with like six 550 watt panels. I need, I need like a thousand watts basically to power, to recharge the batteries throughout the day. So it has basically hit a hundred percent before the sun goes down. And then you need another thousand to, you know, run your AC. Were you going to do like a small electric stove or was that part of it? No, I'm, I'm going to run my, for the stove, I'm going to run like a, a, my white gas stove Okay. for camping. Yeah. My kitchen's going to be very like, I'm actually thinking about making my kitchen to where like my camping chuck box actually slots into the kitchen. So I use that as like my cooking stuff. And then that way, if I ever need it, like if I go camping basically in my Jeep, I can just pull it out of the kitchen and then toss it in the back of the Jeep. So I have my kitchen is always that thing. Right. Probably need a microwave though. Got a microwave those burritos. (laughs) (laughs) But it's going to be interesting is once we get all the power running for it, it's going to be figuring out how to cool it. And I have a really interesting idea on that. You know, an air conditioner, right? You know, you have a compressor, a heat pump, basically. And so I've been looking at mini splits and that kind of stuff. And there's a couple of companies out there that will make a 48 volt mini split. They're not cheap. Like the quotes I'm getting are like six to seven grand. Oh, geez. For these mini split systems. They work really well, though. These would be perfect. If I, if I just said, sure, let's just buy that and buy it, they would work great. But for six to seven grand, I can probably DIY build something that would be way more interesting to do. And something that no one's really done in a box truck before, let alone in an RV. So my idea is going to be to do kind of like a glycol coolant and heating system instead of moving the compressed gas around like you would in a mini split system. So you would have your 48 volt DC compressor that's compressing the ga- uh, your refrigerant. And then you have two heat exchangers. So one is your condenser, so that's your hot side, right? So it comes out of the compressor, goes into this one heat exchanger, and then on the other side of that heat exchanger is just glycol with a pump. So you're heating up that glycol and then it goes through an expansion valve into your other heat exchanger and it's that's your cold glycol because it goes through the expansion valve, goes through cold glycol, then it goes right back into your compressor. So the great thing is you can actually make your like power unit that has like all your refrigerant can be really tiny. Like you can make this thing like the size of probably about 
18 inches by like eight inches by like 10 inches, this box. And then what you do is now you have hot glycol and cold glycol, and then you can just use solenoid ball valves to move that around the box truck so you can heat up. So you'd have a heat exchanger inside your box truck that you can, that hot or cold glycol can go to now. So you can send hot glycol to heat up the box or you can send cold glycol to cool down the box. Then you need heat exchanger outside for your whatever waste energy you're using. So if you're using, if you're heating up the box truck, you need to still use the heat exchanger outside to get rid of the, the cold side, basically. Mm-hmm. That's, that's exactly how a heat pump works for your house. But if you have a mini split split that heats up the inside, that's totally how it works. It's just you instead of using glycol, it just has a valve that switches the gas flow. Which we could totally do it that way too and just put the heat exchangers in the right spot. But there's a cool thing about doing the glycol way. Now use the heat side, your glycol, to heat up your water heater. So you can heat up your water without having to use extra electricity. Because mm. that's just waste energy. Right. So now you can just use it to heat up your hot water now. And then there's also in the future... <laughs> where I want to play around with, if I have excess cooling capacity, I could technically glycol cool my solar panels and get like a 20% efficiency boost out of them. Pump it up through all around them? Yeah, pump up. And then basically what people do is they put tubing on the backside and you just run the glycol through the tubing. And from the what I've read about that, you can get like a 20% boost in efficiency out of your panels that way. Wow. But that's if I have excess cooling. It probably won't be necessary, but it'd be a cool experiment to try. But that's the way, like, it's much easier to move glycol around and add and remove parts of that system than being like, oh, I need to add another heat exchanger that needs to tap into my refrigerant system now. Let me go vacuum down my entire system and repurge everything and that kind of stuff and make sure there's no leaks. Where I'd be like, oh, barb in a tube and just run that <laughs> wherever I want to run it. <laughs> you you got a lot going on in this thing. Oh yeah, always. Always. Well you have a lot of plans going on. <laughs> yeah, a lot of plans. I, I, I really want to just experiment with that glycog loop and seeing how efficient you can make it. Because you could you can also do other things like you can have a an interchange heat exchanger. So where like the cold your waste cold side that comes out of the heat exchanger for the uh the evaporator, you can actually have that cool your leftover heat that your condenser hasn't gotten rid of yet. So like you can cross mingle that and that gives you like a 15% boost in uh, performance of your, your refrigerant system. Hmm. But that's what modern cars do now. Like ever since they started using R1234Y, they all have that in there now. It's like a 10 to 15% boost using that. So I can easily add that to this system. I'm probably going to use R134A, which is a normal automotive refrigerant, uh, because I have a lot of it and I have all the tools to work on that. And I have a certification to work on it, (laughs) on that kind of system. So yeah, that's probably going to be, it's going to be weird building that in the winter and seeing how well it works. Hmm. Because it's got to be like proven in the summer here. Yeah. Because if it doesn't work by next year, that's going to really suck. Are you planning on having this system be a continuous run system? Like your box truck is always cooling itself? That's going to be the idea. Even if it's just it's sitting in your driveway. 
No, it'll be turned off for that. Oh, okay. I yeah. wasn't sure if you were, you know, you got solar panels. They just go. It's always cooling. Yeah. Actually, having it have like a baseline, what it always cools down to, wouldn't be a bad idea from a making sure stuff doesn't degrade, like from heat. Yeah, because things can rot in there if they're just camping at 100 degrees and it's humid. So yeah, you could technically just run it at like 85 all the time. I think it's more about moisture. Just, just oh yeah, it, it would dehumidifying the in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The temperature is less of a issue. Yeah. So yeah, that glycol loop is going to be very interesting. I've seen a lot, some a lot of papers about that kind of design, and it seems very promising. And it wouldn't be that expensive to make. It's two plate chillers that we use for brewing beer with the right fittings on it. And that's it. And that's it. Yeah, it seems so simple. I think what the biggest problem is going to be is insulating the glycol system. That's going to be the most difficult thing. Meaning that like you made this small loop of like reservoir of cold glycol and you made this reservoir of hot glycol. How do you keep those insulated uh, so you don't lose your efficiency, you know, gains to like just the environment? Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to do that part yet. I've been trying to find like insulated containers and stuff, and it's kind of hard. It's, it might be have to be something custom. But these kind of systems are actually what they use in higher end motels and, and I mean, hotels and stuff is they just make a big tank of hot water and make a big tank of cold well, glycol and cold glycol, and they just pump that around to whatever room wants cooling or heat. So, but yeah, go and give that a shot just to see how it works. Because guess what? The worst case is I just, like, cry a lot and buy one of the off-shelf ones. Yeah. Because that would work. Yeah. But it'd be cool if this other thing worked. <laughs> Literally. Yes. You could brew beer with it. That, that sounds like a feature creep that needs to be part of the box truck. It just has like, you can just hook into the glycol loop. Barker goes, drives out to the middle of nowhere and brews a batch out there. Brews a batch <laughs> of beer. Yeah, perfect. Because then you also can keep the, you can use the glycol loop to keep it, uh, the fermentation cool as well. You have to camp for the entire fermentation period. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I just thought about that is depending on... Because you can get the glycol to like 28 Fahrenheit pretty easily with these kind of systems. You could just put a heat exchanger inside of a refrigerator. We talked about this a so while you can ago. Keep but inside I've, the refrigerator really cold on the same loop and keep your efficiency bonuses. So this is actually very similar to something I want to do eventually with my brewery down here. Like I want to put a glycol tank in my refrigerator that I have in my basement. I can put all of my serving kegs in that same fridge. So the, the glycol will be at the serving temperature of the beer. And then I can pipe out glycol out of the fridge and pipe that into temperature controlled fermenters. So I can ferment at whatever temperature you want. But then also the plan eventually, this is a lot, but the plan is to pipe serving hoses up from the basement into the kitchen, which is right above where I brew beer. So you can pull taps from the kitchen and it pumps from the basement in that same fridge. So the, that one fridge controls everything. You have controllers for fermentation. You have 
glycol that runs those tubes all the way up to the kitchen and you have the beer served in the one fridge in the basement. It's one system, one glycol that handles all of it. Yeah, same thing I'm doing, except it's on wheels. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. And it has a hot side too, because it's a... Com- no, yours has technically has a hot side, except it just dumps into your basement. Which is great, because my basement is generally cool or cold all the time, so it slightly warms up my basement. So, yeah. The only thing I'm missing is money and time to actually do all of this. That's Those are the two variables that... Yeah, mine is I don't have a lot of time... Basically, I'm going to have to make that like my winter project is I design and build this system. Yeah. And my uh, free time instead of like working on the car, working on a car. I'm be working on the box truck, which is it is a project. But part of that would be this cooling heating loop. Because then what like for inside the box truck, what you would just use is they make basically heater boxes that go inside of buses that just have a big heater core. So it's a big you know, copper heat exchanger that's in there and with fans. And that is now your hot and cold side. Now, might need to modify it a little bit, actually, because you're going to make condensate when you run the cold line. So you're going to have to handle the condensate on that exchanger. Yeah. But for, like, the line, that thing is for the, the glycol moving around, I'm just going to use basically the brewery-style lines that they run because they have insulation on them. Yeah, and they have like, it's like some ridiculous, like some low loss R rating on them too. So you don't have to worry about your glycol heating up or cooling down if you're running it as a hotline. So like all that stuff is just kind of industrial equipment that you can just go get. So really just making the power pack is what I'm calling it. The power pack loop. And figuring out how to insulate the power pack, like the two tanks that are in there. And then you have to also make it so that's easy to like check the levels of the fluids to make sure you're not losing anything and then uh, purging the system. So you're going to need some pretty decent pumps probably just at least purge it. Mm -hmm. Think about having like a PWM style pump, like a brushless. So you can like modulate the flow as well. So it's not like just hammering tons of power all the time. Like you have like a purge cycle, which, pushes it really fast and then once you know all the air is out you can dial it back for make it nice and quiet we come we got too many cool things to do like i said wish i had more time and money to to handle all this we're going to be like 90 years old and coming up with like another 100 years of projects to do and then we'll die easily (laughs) easily easily (laughs) uh okay so that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your hosts, Stephen Craig. And Parker Doman. Take it easy. Later, everyone. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our podcast. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab at Longhorn Engineer or at Analog ENG or emails at podcast at macfab.com. Yes, we know some person in the world wants to rename it X, but we're going to still call it Twitter for now. And then check out our Slack channel. We're moving to a new community site soon, but this URL will just redirect there when the time comes. So you can find our community at macfab.com slash Slack right now.